Welcome back to the Hex Drinkers Podcast. It's episode eight. I'm Julian. I'm joined by Eric. Hello. Oak. So. And Chef. Yo. And we are a longtime playgroup during the multiverse in the hopes of leveling up both our game and yours. You'd think that I'd have that memorized by now, but I still have to check the prompt every time. So we are about halfway into January, and we got call time, baby. Call time previews coming in hot and spicy, even though that's a very uh, cold and Norse-themed plane. So today we're just going to be going over what we've seen so far, what we like, what we don't like, what we're thinking might uh, come in the future. So first off, there's a few new mechanics, and then there's also just a lot of, like, sub-mechanics. One of the first ones is we've got the return of the MDFCs, which are the modal double-faced cards. So on one side, they're one thing, and on the other side, they're the other thing. And you can choose to play them as either side from your hand. We saw them in Zendikar Rising, and that was all of the MDFCs were either lands on both sides, so those were the pathways, and then we also had spells or creatures with lands on the back side. So everything had a land on one of its sides, as you might expect for Zendikar. So uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the only MDFCs we've seen are the, the last four of the pathway cycle, which is awesome. Uh, and then the gods are, uh, most of the gods are dual-faced with the god on one side and a permanent on the other. So we saw the first time, um, you know, MDFCs were kind of like, we have a spell and this land part is kind of like, so you don't feel like you're running too many lands or you don't feel sort of swamped in the late game and you have these abilities you can play instead. And here I think we're seeing a sort of fix to the quote-unquote problem of legendaries where you can only have one on the field at a time. Where in this case, it's kind of like, oh, I've played one, I have another one, it's not lost value because I can play the other side. So really, it feels like what we're seeing is just kind of another fix to uh, problems that people thought might have kept Magic from running so fluidly. So, you know, we've seen everything from the, the white mythic god of the set being a god on one side and a sword on the other, and then other ones are creatures like the, the blue mythic god. Uh, so we're really seeing like wizards kind of explore with what other types can we put on these cards uh, where it's still efficient and interesting like we saw with the initial release of them in the last set. So I, I was checking as you were talking and confirmed it that all of the gods are MDFCs and it appears it's only the gods, but we have a cycle of gods at mythic. And then we also have maybe one or two for each color at rare as well. So there's a reasonable amount of MDFCs and all of them are god on one side and then some sort of permanent on the other. So there's equipments, there's enchantments, there's uh, creatures, artifacts, all that sort of stuff. And I think another thing in Zendikar Rising, there was abilities that let you pick up lands. So if you had played something as a land early, you could pick it up and get the spell or the creature back. Well, a lot of these, um, if you play them on the backside, which is usually the quote-unquote less powerful side, it's not the god side, um, they have abilities that return them to your hand somewhere or another so that if you played them out earlier, uh, you can get that god back right. to you. So that's pretty cool that they're allowing you to kind of do that dance and pop things in and out of your hand as you need, if, albeit, it's a little mana expensive. It actually reminds me a lot of, I don't think any of you guys have played this, but Legends of Runeterra works with their like legendary creatures. Each legendary creature has a signature spell, and if that champion is already out on the field and you have a second one in your hand it just transforms into that signature spell. Mm. So it sort of works in that same design philosophy of this is a feels bad moment where you draw clearly what's probably going to be one of your favorite or cool cards in your deck, but you aren't allowed to play it because you would just lose value and kill the card. 
Uh, so I think this is a great way to work around that, and I, th I think it's a very cool design decision. I'm happy to see it this time, and I'm interested to see if we're going to see it in the future. Yeah. I also, I mean, the whole the whole kind of uh, draw with these, right, is that there's all this versatility, right? You can play them early. You can play them late. You kind of always have something for the situation because all of these MDFCs are legendary creatures. They're gods. For commander, if one of these is your commander, you can play either side of the command zone. So once again, really, whatever the situation is, you have that that opportunity do you need an equipment or an artifact or an enchantment or whatever play it do you need just the front side to beat face play that as well i'd just like to point out from a user experience perspective how well these cards are designed for those unaware the ravnica split cards i'm mentioning had both halves you could say of the spell printed on one side of the card uh, which worked, again, better for instance and sorceries, which they all were in those sets. But for this, permanence, uh, you got both sides, and it, it just works out so much better. Yeah, speaking of those, Wizards recently made a, a ruling that pertains to the CMC of MDFCs, and if you were to get to cast them for free or in alternate way, how that works within the rules. The prime example is something like Cascade. You know, you cast something with Cascade and then you flip the top of your deck until you hit a spell that costs less than whatever that CMC is. If you hit an MDFC, according to Wizards' ruling, like the Cascade will trigger off the front side, whatever that CMC is, but you can choose to cast either side when you get the option to cast it for free, which I was seeing people saying that, you know, you Cascade with a four-mana spell and you hit uh, two-mana the Black Mythic God, which is... Spoiler is a Tibble in disguise. Um, you get to cast the seven mana Tibble off the back. I'm just kind of baffled by. It. I can't believe that this was the ruling that they decided to make. I bring it up with the split cards because there was originally a ruling that this when you did weird things like this with the split card, you could choose either side. Like if there was a split card that was two mana and six mana, you could quote unquote hit the two mana spell and then cast the six mana spell, um, and then they change the ruling in that that spell is eight mana total it's two plus six so i don't know what the decision behind this ruling was but i think it's going to end up getting changed because that just seems crazy that you can cheat mana in that way I, I thought we were past this but i guess we're still there yeah i know i was just complimenting the uh design decision but i guess on the other side of that um, get out of here you can see <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh. on the other side of that it seems weird that um this change in the ruling that they made is pretty much undone by this, and that's because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the cards converted mana cost just the cost of the front side, not both yeah. combined? That's that's the the sort of like basics on how this has worked, and I we w we won't know for sure until the official release notes came out. But this is from you know the Twitter threads that happened with every set release where people are asking these questions like off the get go. And I, I definitely agree, especially because we saw some of the stuff with how the the modal cards were treated in Zendikar Rising, like when they're in your graveyard and when you treat them as the front of the card versus the back. So it's it's very interesting to see like where the properties of the front card end and where the properties of both cards kind of pick up. This is why we have clients like Arena that just have the entire rules in their code so that it'll just let me know if I can do that or not. It's it's confusing it's not intuitive and it's unfortunate because I think this is such a great mechanic. I wish they had just like gotten a hundred percent instead of 95%.
when you start doing shenanigans with the front and back of these cards, it definitely won't crash MTGO for the first full month that these cards are released. <laughs> that certainly will not occur. Oh, well, <laughs> MTGO is just... That's... Yeah. We've given up on MTGO. Enter the future, Eric. It's the 21st century. Get Arena. Uh, let me play Commander on Arena. Brawl. Brawl, brother. Brawl. You know that's not what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to quickly say that most of these cards look very reasonable and look the right amount of push of like, hey, look, it's a cool mechanic. Like, we're doing it really well. Except for Yorn. Uh, Yorn, God of Winter, looks unbelievably pushed. Why? It's just weird to untap all your lands. I like the idea of untapping all your creatures, all your, you know, snow creatures with some of the effects we're going to see later that involve attacking, all the snow creatures with activated abilities and stuff like that. But the fact that he's also just like a built-in bear umbra or sort of feast of famine yeah sort of feast and famine one of those effects where it's just oh and all your lands untapped because there's no downside to having exclusively snow lands it's kind of whack i mean i don't know i'm i'm not too worried about that you know looking back like this isn't a seedborn muse this isn't a wilderness wreck and like you need to attack to do it so unless you're also doing shenanigans with like multiple attack steps um but at the end of the day, I don't feel like this ability is like super crazy considering we've seen all the parts of this before. But even then, if you look at the number of snow creatures and so far there hasn't really been anything that's been super crazy with snow creatures printed in this set. And there certainly isn't any crazy snow creatures from previous sets where it's like really at the end of the day, I think this is mostly going to be untapping your lands and that's it. Let's transition into snow because snow is a returning quote-unquote mechanic snow has had support across various sort of single sets throughout the history of magic it's kind of an enigma basically if you have a snow permanent of which there are snow basic lands creatures uh enchantments artifacts i think um if they produce mana it is a snow type of mana um and then things care about snow uh whether that's how many snow permanents you have or if you use snow mana to cast them, that sort of stuff. So since we're on Kaldheim, we're bringing back snow. Snow basic lands are back, and we have a cycle of all 10 dual lands, so they have basic land types, and then they come in tapped, and they're also snow. Yorn, God of Winter, who is the the uh, suspect in question right now, is two and a green for a legendary snow creature god. Um, whenever he attacks, untap each snow permanent you control, but he's also an MDFC because he's a god, so on the back it's Kaldring the Rhine Staff which is one, a blue, and a black for a legendary snow artifact. You can tap it to play target snow permanent card from your graveyard this turn, and if it does, it enters the battlefield tapped. So whenever he attacks, untap each snow permanent you control. Lands can be snow permanents if you have snow basic lands or any of those now dual lands. And this is an attack trigger. It's not like Bear Umbra, I think, or definitely Sword of Feast and Fame, where you actually have to make contact with the player. This untaps it immediately. So you could just suicide Jorn if you wanted to. But the thing is... I'm a little uh, annoyed, I guess, that double all your mana, but also this is just the Sultai good stuff, so clearly there's nothing we could get up to in, in terms of that. Like you were saying, Chev, the rest of the snow mechanic in this set so far, so far, so far, we're only halfway through, um, <laughs> has not been uh, super um, egregious by any means. But this guy, I'm just like, why, why, why can't he be Mardu or Jeskai or literally anything other than Sultai? You know, especially mm -hmm. in just, and green on the front. Like, why can't he be black on the front and blue green on the back or something you know what i mean yeah 
I consider snow kind of this batch mechanic, really only the second time we've seen it in Magic, the first time being historic back in Dominaria, where it's kind of like a classifier for other cards and kind of relates to a bunch of them in the same way. And so it's really like, okay, if I were to envision a snow commander outside of something that's completely like crazy or new and, you know, my mind went to ice counters, what can ice counters do or whatever? But there's there's only like so many things you can kind of do triggering off of these batch keywords because you have to refer to kind of like all of them, I would say. I was looking at the legends that you might play in commander from Dominaria that referred to the historic keyword, thinking that could be a good parallel for snow. And what we see is we see Joyra, which is whenever you play a historic card, draw a card. And then you see um, like Raph, who is whenever you play a historic spell, they have flash. So I was looking at those and I was like, okay, you know, I, I feel like a lot of these aren't really as revolutionary as like maybe we would hope. Would I have rather it said whenever I play a snow card, draw a card? Probably not. I do wish it was something a little more out of the box, but I guess I can understand from the past what this is kind of doing. I saw on Twitter, somebody said, basically, the basic land is dead. Sell all your basic lands. Because the common argument is that it's it's essentially strictly better to play snow lands. So in modern and legacy, there's really no reason to play normal basic lands, um, especially with Modern Horizons 1. They reprinted some snow cards uh, and some some reasonably good ones, most notably uh, Ice Fang Coatl, which is basically a Baleful Strix. If you are playing snow lands, your opponent automatically has to think that you might have these cards. So they have to play around, insert other snow card here. There's not that many, but there's enough that it's they have to think about that. And then if you play basic lands, they basically know that you don't have these snow cards. So that gives them extra information. Now they're in standard. I feel like there's enough things that could or would be playable that this snow basic land conundrum kind of comes up. I would agree with that entirely. I do not think that in standard play you will see non-snow basics for the next two years because there's literally no reason not to. Other than for visual purposes and pride of basic lands aren't dead, I can play basics. Like, why wouldn't you? Right. And I think it's very dumb. I'm hoping at least at some point during the rest of the spoiler season, we start to see cards that have an advantage when used against snow permanents rather than with in conjunction. Uh, the joke I'd like to make is, well, Julian, what if I'm running a land destruction deck and I'm playing Thermokarst against a snow covered deck? I, I'm going to gain, you know, one life for every land I destroy because they're snow covered. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that, that is a downside, but it's not really good enough. Um, at the very least, we've seen the design team try and play around the, with this in the past, this notion. And I, I wasn't even thinking about the implications of like, oh yeah, like my, my opponent might be running these cards now that they're running snow covered. Yeah, I, I think snow needs a downside. The best downside that I've heard proposed to print multiple cards like OKM Adversary, where it's just like, hey, if your opponent has a snow land, this just costs two less or like... If, like, when this enters the battlefield and your opponent has a snow land, it has haste. Essentially just, like, an okay card, where if your opponent has a snow land, it's a great card. And then that adds, like, well, is it worth it? Like, do I really need these snow lands? It's another dial you can turn on the meta, which I think would be interesting. Yeah, we know at least one, one card, but is said to be at rare and deal with snow. We just haven't seen it yet. I saw this was mentioned a lot in our notes, but no one mentioned anything about it. The new snow cards have a frosted border. That's all the snow cards. Uh, and it looks awesome. That's true. 
the frosted treatment is absolutely gorgeous. I can't even imagine how it's going to look in foil. I honestly think the basic lands, despite having the regular border, look better than the ones printed in Modern Horizons, which all kind of had this weird, like, toothpaste kind of art style to it. Like, especially the snow-covered island really just looks like a glob of, of toothpaste. I think something else that's not getting enough attention is the tap lands, right? Not only are they all 10 of them in a single set, they also are typed and at common. And I think in booster packs, you have a chance of getting them instead of a basic land, which is just kind of insane when you think about, it, especially with enemy colors. Like we're getting an enemy cycle of lands that's typed. And really the only ones we've had prior to this is the original duels and the shock lands. Three of my five commander decks are enemy colored and just giving me another thing to fetch is amazing. Let's uh, let's move on from snow to one of our new mechanics, which is kind of a, an underloved mechanic so far, but I'm excited to see what it does. And that's boast. Boast is an activated ability and the boast trigger is that you can only activate this ability only if the creature that has that ability attack this turn and only once each turn. So there's been some really good ones spoiled. There's one Eradicator Valkyrie, which is two black black for an Angel Berserker, 4-3, Flying, Lifelink, and Hexproof from Planeswalkers. And then it has Boast, one and a black, sacrifice a creature. Each opponent sacrifices a creature or a Planeswalker. I think this ability is really cool, especially since we're playing a lot of Commander. Anything that's going to encourage more attacking is interesting to me. And I also like that since these are activated abilities, it's not like Raid, which was a uh, keyword in Khan's block as well as in Ixalan block, I believe, um, which basically triggered if you had a creature attack this turn. So like, you know, second main, you play something, you have Raid because you attacked. This one is an activated ability. Your creature potentially could die during combat. So they kind of push these a little bit. Um, another one that uh, I was a, a fan of was Varagoth, who's the Blood Sky Sire. He's two and a black for a two, three... Uh, Demon Rogue with Death Touch, and his boast ability is one one in a black as well. Target player searches their library for a card, then shuffles their library and puts that card on top. So this is a theoretically repeatable Vampiric Tutor. So I like that they're able to push these boast abilities since they're extra risk, you know? Yeah, I think I think those are super cool. And I think my favorite is, um, I don't believe we have an actual translation for the name yet, but it's, it's a red creature that has... Uh, boast abilities cost one less for each dragon you control. It costs like five mana to boast, which creates a dragon, which of course makes the boast cheaper. And so the more dragons you have, the cheaper it is to boast. And something like that, where it's not only, you know, feeding into a new mechanic and making it cool, but in an interesting way. Uh, I know Eric fully appreciates something that makes dragons. Anything that kind of can make him happy and isn't a green, I think makes the rest of us happy. Chev has stolen my thunder. I was going to talk about this specific card at the end. All the Berserkers seem to be uh, red and black in this set. Uh, they've only shown one dragon so far that I saw. It, it This doesn't seem like it's one of the main tribes that they're focusing on, but uh, this seems like an interesting crossover between dragon tribal and boast synergies. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much most of what we've seen. There are maybe like two other boast cards that we've seen, but they've been common, so not as exciting, but... Once again, I hope that they print more of these cool things. I think that this will be pretty cool and limited. And I think that some of these higher rarity ones, the two that I mentioned, the Dragon Berserker guy that Eric mentioned and Cheb mentioned, I think these are going to be very interesting cards, especially to play within Commander or even Brawl. Our second new mechanic is Foretell. So, and it says during your turn, you may pay two generic mana. Exile this card from your hand face down, cast it on a later turn for its foretell cost. So 
I'm looking at Kaya's Onslaught right now. It's two and a white for target creature gets plus one, plus one, and gains double strike. It's also got Fortel for a white. So on turn two, you can pay two, exile this, and then later on, you can cast it for just a white. So it's kind of like an installment plan if we're comparing things to the real world. I think the other biggest notable thing is that it exiles it face down, so your opponents don't actually know what it is you're foretelling. Only you do. This is a mechanic that kind of gives off morph vibes. Obviously, morph costs were three, uh, and I, I know they only occurred on permanents, but it might even only be creatures. You, you, you can't forget Planar Chaos block. We right. saw in Future Sight there was Morph on an enchantment, I think a couple artifacts, and a few other things. There's definitely a land that has Morph too. So so when your card was Morphed, it gives you a 2-2 body on the battlefield, but though this is a theoretically, I, I feel like, designed around being an upside, it's really a downside since your little 2-2 with no abilities can get killed. The great thing about Fortel, I guess in that sense, is that it can't be interacted with. It is exiled, it is face down. Before it gets foretold, it can still be, like, thought seized out of your hand or something, so. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. Like, I definitely have been a little bit wary about it because I don't like how they're exiled face down and kind of like, okay, I'm going to put this aside for later and then I can use it whenever I want. Uh, and then you can't pull it out of my hand once I do so. But you're right, there, there are plenty of chances still to deal with it. Like, when it gets cast, you can still counter it. I, I like the, the spells the most that are kind of like in installments. Like Julian was mentioning earlier, it reminds me of all of those ads that Walmart runs around Christmas on cable TV, where it's like a layaway plan, you know, you pay in installments. And so we saw, you know, this, this counter spell that looks pretty cool. It's foretell cost is too generic, because I believe that's all foretell cost. And then to cast it, it's one generic and one blue. And normally it's a cancel. So you, you have the ability to kind of just put it aside in a deck that maybe isn't all blue. Or when you're light on mana, it, it's just the perfect sort of set it aside for later. And I think it really, that ability really hits on what, you know, Magic has been saying for years. That counterspell is a two and a half mana ability at its core. Uh, Chev, because you mentioned the counterspell, I gotta say, I love Fortel uh, because I like this sort of quote-unquote mana advantage you get, just that... Mm -hmm. A lot of times during random turns, you might have two mana lying around, so you can just kind of set things aside and get a sort of discount later on a turn, right. which could be yeah. a crucial turn. You might need that one mana difference or whatever. But um, Blue-White Control is my favorite deck in Standard. <laughs> it hasn't been viable since right after Theros, um, so like almost a year. But uh, I, I see a few cards in this set that are getting me hyped. The Cancel, which is called Saw It Coming. There's also... Uh, Behold the Multiverse, which is a three and a blue for a scry two, draw two. But if you foretell it, it's only one and a blue. These cards, uh, along with there is an Entreat the Angels sort of effect that if you foretell it, it's that XX white make four, four angels with uh, Vigilance and Flying. Uh, these corner sort of things all could sort of coalesce into a blue-white control shell, mostly because that deck, on the first like three turns of the game, it's no, it doesn't really do anything. It just wants to hit its land drops. So if on turns two and three, I can put away a counter spell and put away a draw two, on turn four, I can counter your spell and then scry two, draw two, set me up for the next You're turn. You're balling. There's a lot of good things that can happen with Fertel for this sort of deck in particular. I mean, it doesn't have to be blue-white control, but those sort of decks, especially control decks or decks that play at flash uh, speed, sort of like like the rogues deck in standard, um, probably will pick up some of this sort of stuff if it goes more of a spell-based route. I really like that because it, it allows you to kind of... Uh, it allows you more options on those crucial turns like turn four or 
turn six, etc. Um, so I'm I'm pretty excited for that, and uh, I think the the viewers can get excited for me to be doing some gameplay videos because that's probably gonna, the first deck I'm going to build. It's either that or Giant Tribal. Speaking of Tribal, um, Tribal is another sort of like Snow. It's an underlying sort of theme. It's not a new mechanic. It's not keyworded or anything. But due to the lore makeup of Kaldheim, there's these 10 different realms similar to traditional Norse mythology. Um, each realm is kind of dominated by a certain race. So humans, gods, spirits, elves, giants, shapeshifters, demons. I think I might be missing one or two, but oh, dwarves. I think it's cool just because there's a lot of cards that are boosting established tribes like elves. Um, and then there's a lot of cards that are boosting up tribes that uh, need some support like dwarves, which I think is sick because I, I would love to play a dwarf deck in standard. I think Giants is in that same sort of camp where it could really use a boost. And I gotta say, I'm a big fan of the way they seem to be doing it so far on this set. In Norse <laughs> um, mythology, which the set is obviously based around, the Giants are, in addition to being very strong, obviously large, they're also very wise, which is reflected in what seems to be blue-red being the sort of color pair that this tribe is going to revolve around for this set. Good old Might and Magic. I'm excited about everything that's come out so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. I do like what they're doing with the Giants here, too, where they're like four and five mana Giants, because if you if you look back to traditional Giants throughout Magic up until basically just a couple of years ago, they were like, this is a Giant. It's an eight mana nine nine. Hope you like that. <laughs> and I'm like, I will never cast this ever, especially since there are no green Giants, so there's no way I'm ramping to that. <laughs> Lest we forget uh, Hamleback Goliath, my oh, original Power 9 card. Shrek. <laughs> Get Shrek out of here. What a guy. What a guy. I hate Shrek. I Honestly, like, out of all the themes we've seen, I've been paying the least amount of attention to tribal stuff. Just because, like, it's it's been overshadowed for me by snow and then seeing all the new mechanics. But I, I'm a big fan of the Golgari elves that seem to be getting, like, a massive, you know, upgrade including, of course, the ridiculous uh, commander uh, from the commander deck, which is tap if you control 10 elves, each opponent loses 10 life and you gain 10 life. I really don't think it's that hard to get 10 elves. Uh, the new saga that brings back an elf or this elf planeswalker. I mean, I loved black green elves from the very beginning, and I don't know if I'll make another commander deck anytime soon, but I will meet Julian's dwarves and Oakley's giants on the hill of standard with uh, BG elves all the way. Hey man, I love tribal decks. I would love to see a bunch of tribal decks in that tier one, tier two area in standard. One thing that I, I think is actually really interesting is that they've made changelings a tribe. Mm. Like, that's really prominent. Tribal tribal. Where y you could just play all of the tribal advantages really and just say well this is a giant dwarf dragon berserker wizard deck and you're right because all of your changelings are those things i think it'll be interesting to see if any sort of broader decks like the existing rogues deck in standard or like my existing dragon deck in commander or i know oakley's actively working on an elementals deck if any of those changelings find their way in there because they're just you know, sort of the best in slot. There, if there's any really good, just like three or four drop changelings that really just sort of work. Um, noticing a lot more actually parallels now to Modern Horizons with this set, which was, you know, as we mentioned, they had a printing of snow-covered lands 
Snow was a mechanic. Yeah, that's right. They had the changeling stuff. Yeah, they did have changelings, and they did have uh, like a lot of tribal support, including like slivers and ninjas. I know me and Chev did a little bit of uh, limited with that, and I think the changelings, <laughs> at, le- at the very least, in limited, the changelings did a great job of supplementing one of the other tribes. So if I wanted to play like a tribal deck with black, like ninjas, for example, I could play changeling outcast fits in great or if i wanted to play well, black green was probably elves in modern horizons if i wanted to play elves i could also run changeling outcast in that and it would count towards uh being an elf so i think it's possible that we'll see a lot of tribal decks up and coming with like a couple shapeshifters thrown in as well but probably not just a full uh shapeshifter deck Speaking of limited, though, I do think that these shapeshifter creatures that have the the changeling keyword, these are going to be nice to kind of flesh that out, too, because we saw in Zendikar Rising that party was such a big thing. So focusing on either having a bunch of clerics or a bunch of rogues or a nice even distribution of them, you know, kind of considering how many changelings you have in your deck can help fuel uh, these other cards that care about if you have a quote unquote giant or a quote unquote berserker or whatever. Well, you know, you have something that kind of functions in all those. So I, I think in limited especially these common changelings are going to be really nice as well. They might actually help support party in standard. If yeah. there's enough good ones, like mm, that's very true. That's sure. True. This weird goop wandering the frozen wasteland. He's a wizard. Why not? <laughs> he's also a cleric. You don't know what Mr. Goop is capable of. <laughs> don't you look down on Mr. Goop. All right. Well, there's one last uh, mechanic sort of thing that we want to talk about. Sagas are making their triumphant return. So Sagas originally premiered in Dominaria, then they were run back in Theros Beyond Death, and now now they're coming back here, which is uh, very appropriate. Uh, the Sagas have always felt to me right at home in these planes that have these sort of traditional mythology-inspired things. You know, they're like the great tales passed down. So when they were in Theros Beyond Death, I thought they were excellent, and I think here they're doing even better because now instead of making a bunch of monocolored ones, they're hitting... Um, once for all of the two-color pairs, um, and I think even maybe more than one per two-color pair. And I do have to say that the art on these is, not that the art for the other sagas that we've had previously has been bad, but these are just taking it to a whole new level in terms of, you know, the way the tapestry setting works. And then also, uh, we've got a couple that are actual wood carvings from actual Viking wood carvers, which is just chef's kiss, cherry on top, absolutely delicious. Yeah, I I think that the art on a lot of these really adds to, like, the story of magic outside of, like, actually going on the Wizards website and reading the weekly article. Like, when you see cards, like, binding the old gods and it shows this beautiful art, and then the actual mechanics, like, tell a story that is sort of all contained in this one card, the whole thing is so good as, like, a flavorful package. Just because you're saying that, I got to continue to gush and just deliver to our listeners exactly what's going on. One of my personal favorites, the Trickster God's Heist. So this is two and a black and a blue for a saga. The first chapter is you may exchange control of two target creatures. And the, the art next to that portion is you see two guys. One of them looks like a blacksmith and he's holding a sword. And the kind of lore behind this is that Tybalt came in and swapped places with the god that was in this realm that would have been Loki. So like the prankster God, right? So he's coming in, you're exchanging control of two target creatures. You're swapping out this old one 
for Tybalt. And then the second chapter is you may exchange control of two target non-basic non-creature permanents that share a card type. So in this, you see that this new figure has taken the sword from the blacksmith and has stabbed him in the back. So he has stolen that sword from him. And then the last one is target player loses three life and you gain three life. And you see that Tybalt has unveiled himself and he's now holding this sword, which I'm assuming this sword has a, a greater purpose in the whole thing. So basically he's come through and he's uh, wreck, wrecked some havoc on your plane. I think it's just absolutely perfect. And this is just one of many of these um, sagas that have this perfect cohesion between the abilities, the title, the art, the lore. I've said this multiple times. I think sagas are the single greatest thing that has happened to Magic in at least the... When when was Dominaria? 2017? So at least the last three or four years, I think, is the single greatest thing, and they just continue to head out of the park. I think my favorite thing about that card in particular is... Like the, so, so the idea of exchanging permanence has been around for a while, right? Now we have two commanders that can do this. We have Zedru, who is blue, white, red. Oh, okay, so it can't, it can't run this card. But, you know, there's plenty of other support for uh, Zedru. Who else do we have that changes permanence? Oh, Blim. He's new from the commander set. What colors is he? Uh, oh, he's, he's black and red. Okay. So, you know, something that, you know, it definitely makes sense for the theme of the card, like what it's doing that it should be blue and black. Um, but I, I remember seeing like how everyone was like super excited when it came out. And then there's this collective dawning on, it can't be run in either of the commanders that are good at exchanging stuff. <laughs> the red black saga in Kaldheim is much more like <laughs> just very red black as opposed to this, <laughs> this thing. So it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. I wish this is a side note, of course, but I wish Blim was, uh, I wish there was more support for him because he is such a cool card, but he really... He's great. Yeah, you really just have the black enchantments. You should have at least been Grixis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these sagas all look sweet. I think mm -hmm. Trickster's God Heist is pretty cool. Uh, in terms of, speaking of Commander, I think that one could see play. I think a bunch of these could see play in Standard or Brawl. I wrote in our notes, uh, unfortunately, when you have things like Yorian in the format as a dominant deck, basically any of these can see play because they can just get blinked. So please, please get rid of Yorian so that we can... Uh, not have to deal with that anymore but i think the other standout uh, saga is binding of the old gods which is the one that is that wood wood carving it's this beautiful it's like a tree almost like encasing what i'm assuming is an old god and then there's like humans at the bottom like kind of like poking them with spears like yeah you you get out of here this is this is our turf now so that's a, a two and a black and a green first chapter destroy target non-land permanent or component controls full stop pretty great second chapter search your library for a forest card put on the battlefield tap then shuffle your library Notably, in things like Standard, this can get our new Snowlands as well as Triumphs. And then uh, the last one, Creatures You Control Gain Death Touch until end turn, which is really good if you got a bunch of creatures with Trample. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of, as Julian sort of started with Trickster Gods Heist, I wanted to sort of add on about Binding the Old Gods, where as you read down the image, you can see like this large creature sort of dying and then you can actually see that it's not just dying, but it's being sort of bound by this tree. So it's destroying the permanent, it's growing into this forest, and then at the bottom is the people are actually dealing the killing blow. It's giving them death touch, and it's this this really cool progression through the saga that works really well narratively and mechanically. Let's talk about some cards. Let's talk about some individual cards that we are hyped to see that we might want to put in some decks. Whoever wants to go first, just shout it out. There's no raising hands. 
uh, Varinclex. He's back, baby! Uh, except Kaya, I, I swear to God, I saw an art where Kaya was stabbing him, and if Kaya kills him, I'm gonna be tilted off the face of the earth. Oh, agreed. But, for now, he's back. Agreed. That is, that is unfortunately sort of the story. Like, the story's not complete, but that's where it's heading. Bull uh, <laughs> you can edit that out. It's stupid. I gotta find a beep sound that I can put in. So that just I... find, just steal a sound effect from Arena and just use that to cover mm. curse words. All right, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I like that. Um, but anyway, the Praetors are back with the new t keyword, or not keyword, but type, Phyrexian. So that is now a typed word, which is very exciting. But also, I'm just happy to see Varinclex back. I really like the way that they did it, where they didn't just say, oh, we're going to reprint Varinclex. Boring. Snooze. Get out of here. Instead, they they went with a new design that really also fits well within green, but also keeps the idea of the Praetors not just bolstering your power, but just cleaving through the power of your opponents and just really sort of ruining what they're trying to do. Uh, I just I love the card. I think it's also great how there's a showcase art of it that is going to exist as many, you know, showcase arts do happen to do, what? Uh, but that's completely in Phyrexian. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I got lost in the middle, but um, so there's, you're right. You're correct. Yeah. So there's, there's a Phyrexian Vorinclex, which is probably going to be awful when we return to paper magic and you forget exactly how does it deal with counters again and how much is like the round down on your opponents. But, like, if I just slap that down, I expect the entire table to just sigh and go to their phones to look up the rules text. But luckily, Arena kind of mitigates that problem. I still want one, though. True. Chev, I originally thought you were talking about the Nordic showcase frame for Vorinclex, mm. which I think which is... Which is also pretty sweet. That's excellent. He just has so many good ones. Yeah. So, Vorinclex, 6-6 Trample Haster, already pretty good. Doubles the amount of counters that you would put on things, halves the amount of counters that your opponents would put on things. So... Good for infect and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know what that's really good against? Sagas, in some cases. They never get to finish their saga. Every time they try and put a counter on it to progress the saga, because that is how sagas progress, right? Is with Correct. counters? Yep. Yeah. It puts half of one rounded down, which is zero. So it just keeps hitting the same one over and over. It continues to hit the same trigger. Which also means it's kind of a non-bow with sagas, because then it doubles the counter, so you skip a phase, potentially. True. It, I think that's a really interesting interaction that he's just like, ah, I'm ruining the story. And you're like, God, stop it for Inglex. What are you doing, you madman? I don't actually know if, if they can't put that counter on. I don't think they get the trigger. I think you're right. Oh, it just Julian. remains yeah. at the one? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. There's no downside. If you can put Verinclex down after they get the first trigger, they stay on the first trigger. Or if you just have Verinclex down, I think any saga that they play just does, does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> at least until he leaves and then it would try and trigger normally history does not exist as long as Vorinclex has anything to say about it <laughs> he's too important he's the story he's front page news baby ain't nobody talking about anything else i'm sorry i'm done eric i, I want to ask you we see Vorinclex. it's obviously a large shock to players everywhere that the phyrexians are showing up this early in the story we had suspected it but we didn't think it was going to be until at least next year and also they're on Kaldheim, which once again, we don't really know the lore importance, but do you think they're going to print the rest of the Praetors or do you think it's just him? No, because of the way the lore ended where Urbrask was like, actually, I think like protecting the humans is valuable. And then Atraxa was like, actually, I'm going to kill you or not Atraxa, Aleshnorn, yeah. uh, just murdered him and then made 
in her eyes, like, the perfect Praetor Atraxa, where it was everything but Red. Red was too emotional and too unstable for the Phyrexians. So I think that, A, we're certainly not going to see Urbrask because he's dead. <laughs> and also, I think Alesh Norn probably turned on the other colors. I don't remember if she definitely did in the lore, or if that's just my headcanon. But I think she probably turned on the other Praetors at some point, too, and sort of tried to to push them out. Purify everything, yeah. I believe she took head control. Like, they each had their own domains, and then I believe she took control of all of New Phyrexia. I don't know if she still employed the other Praetors as, like, her generals, or if she was like, your services aren't needed anymore. I, yeah, I think Varinclex has been pushed out. So far, he's brought no Phyrexians with him. Other than Changelings, nothing else has had the Phyrexian type. <laughs> That'd be such... Oh, the, the heel turn. The Changelings are all just Phyrexians, idiots. <laughs> the, there's a Snow Legend shapeshifter clone thing. I'm not going to read the card. But his face is eerily similar in terms of it's like this horned skull thing. It's very eerily similar to what Vorinclex is wearing. I wonder if maybe we'll find out that he, like, ate that shapeshifter and that's how he got that. Because in the story, he's, like, eating bears and then, like, he, like, grows bear fur. <laughs> he's always had, like, the antler, like, helmet yeah. thing. Yeah. So I think it's possible that, like, the shapeshifters are trying to imitate Varinclex. So say, you know, you're, you're running some sagas. You're running some nice sagas and you see the other person's about to play a Varinclex. And you're not really about that, but uh, what are you going to do if you're not running blue? Well, now there's an answer, because what this set needed more than anything else is a red counter spell. The, the first three words are counter target spell, and then a block of text, which makes it the red part where you mill a couple cards to deal with anyone who is like um, affecting the top of their deck, looking at Oak and his sensei's divining top. Uh, and then, you know, you flip cards from the top until you, they cast one kind of like a chaos warp for spells. And, you know, considering the, the heated discussion that we all had about a, a certain blue common that will remain nameless, this really didn't punch me in the same way because I just looked at it and thought, oh, Chaos Warp for Spells. Makes sense. I'm the red guy, so I gotta talk about this. I think this card is well designed. I think it's a good example of doing things that red doesn't normally do, but in a red way. Best example I can give from that is Enchanter's Bane. Um... So yeah, I think this is another example that just well-designed, like, even though mill isn't really a red mechanic, uh, having your opponent mill a random amount of cards before they chaos warp their spell is uh, just good because it gets around top deck manipulation, like Chev said. Uh, any blue players that maybe want to scry beforehand, or any goons like me running senseis, and... The last thing I'll say is that, honestly, when I first saw this card, I think, like Chad was saying, part of the reason it didn't really, like, hit so much is because I didn't think it was all that good. But I might have been thinking, sort of, I guess, just in the scope of standard. I don't really think this is going to see a lot of play in standard, but when it comes to, like, having a deck with that's red and not blue in EDH, having a spell that can just delete a game-winning card is really good even if it means that your opponent still has the chance of getting something else good as a result. Um, again, kind of like Chaos Warp. So, I'm excited for this card. I know you guys have been playing up like, oh, it gets around top deck manipulation, you mail three cards, it's random. Uh, one of the first discussions I thought of when I saw this card was, man, you can just scroll rack three lands and an Emrakul on top of your library, and that's a free Emrakul right there. Because... <laughs> 
it's non-land spell or it's spells which doesn't count lands so if you put three lands on top no matter what random number you generate you cut through the rest of the lands try and cast like elvish mystic counter your own elvish mystic womp emrakul with the cast trigger would this be countering your own spell by the way Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sorry, yeah. you just explained that, and my, my brain was like five seconds behind. If, if someone tries to counter your spell with this card, there are niche ways that you could punish them, but uh, it's cool. Like you said, it's cool that this is just a full stop, you are going to win the game, and I have a way to prevent you, even though I'm running mono red or whatever. Not blue. Well, something that I think is sick that's not as uh, powerful, but I just, I just like that it's coming through is vehicle support. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Beep, beep. Coming through. <laughs> they were first true. introduced in Kaladesh block, and then there's kind of been like tricklings of them throughout, but uh, they're coming back here, and I think there's actually some some regionally good ones. There's the Raider's Carve, which is a, a three-mana vehicle, 4-4, four, four, and then when it attacks, you get to look at the top card of your library. If it's a land, you can put it on the battlefield tapped. Uh, that's pretty cool just because it's reasonable on rate in terms of just a 4-4 four, four for three. I mean, yes, you have to crew it and all that, but whatever. Um, and also, it's like sort of ramp. I think that also plays nicely in because a lot of vehicle strategies are red white and uh, dwarves are kind of associated with that we have dwarves on this plane so i think that's why and i think that uh magda brazen outlaw who was is a, a dwarf sort of lord but she also says whenever a dwarf you control becomes tapped create a treasure token well a great way to tap your stuff without having to get into combat is crewing vehicles so i love that there's this additional vehicle support which i guess inherently comes with some dwarf support maybe chev can finally revive his depala deck or something like that yeah i was i was gonna say julian the favorite card i have for vehicle support is a it's a bit of a weird one it's uh two mana a zero six now you might be like chev vehicles care about power you dummy what does this got to do with vehicles and i would say well julian this ox can crew vehicles with its toughness which forgetting the fact that it's an ox that they decided to go with on this but it's now like driving a tank i mean that alone (laughs) is almost reason to rebuild my boros vehicle deck especially when you know my mind instantly ran to turn one or two counselor dreadnought I believe is the name. It's an it's a uh, Kaladesh block vehicle that costs one mana. It's a seven eleven and has crew six. So now I'm thinking magical Christmas land. Drop that turn one. Drop the ox turn two, and I'm swinging for seven. Uh, you know, <laughs> before I had to worry about getting a siege modification or one of those other ones that turns a artifact into a vehicle. Blah blah blah. But like I'm thinking oxes for days. Forget dwarves. Oxes are the the future of the world. Really. Chev, uh, I'm going to look this up right now, but you might be able to do that in Historic. If I can do it in Historic, that would be a reason for me to go to Historic. But yeah, I I mean, I would definitely say that the vehicle support is super nice. It is. You can do it. Can I? It's there. Oh, the ox driving the uh, skyship. That might have to be a video, Chev. Are you going to throw four mythic wild cards at this deck to run a full playset of the skyship there is a chance yes just play it in brawl if it's what the viewers want eric <laughs> i will give it it's to what them. everyone or wants i will find out julian's password and use his account because he has oh, plenty of cards we'll see that was enough pause i think i've convinced him uh, julian had just mentioned magda pretty cool dwarf but also um like in terms of mono red you know and you're running magda as a commander you get a lot of dragon support. Whenever a dwarf you control becomes tapped, create a treasure token, as Julian mentioned before. You can also sacrifice five treasures to search your library for an artifact or dragon card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. As someone who's played mono-red decks, you run a lot of dragons, because those are the big boys. Talking Tyrant's Familiar, 
Scourge of the Throne, Balefire Dragon, they're all in there. Never heard of them. <laughs> and these guys all love them. One other potential commander I wanted to mention is... Is it Carter? Is that who you're it, talking Yes, about? it is. I know it starts with a K, damn it. Wow, I really can't find this card. <laughs> it's um, K-A-R-D-U-R. Search for it. You wrote you wrote it in the notes. The, the Its own name. Okay, well, you know what? This is all I'm going to say about it anyways. All you need to know is that it's Disrupt Decorum on a stick. Uh, I believe it's a demon. I also know that. And it's red-black. For so, uh, for those who looked it up on Scryfall, uh, when Carter Doomscar Krieger... Oh, that's in German. <laughs> <laughs> it's two, a red and a black. For a demon berserker, it's a 4-3. Uh, legendary, of course. When Cardor, the Doom Scourge, or the Doomscar Krieger, if you're German, uh, enters the <laughs> battlefield, until your next turn, creatures your opponents control attack each combat if able and attack a player other than you if able. And then also, whenever an attacking creature dies, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, as I was saying, Disrupt Decorum on a stick. Uh, probably abusable, but no big deal. Because we all love attacking, we all love making our opponents attack. That's all about all I have to say about that. Oak, on a, uh, a quick side note, something I think you should look into a little bit, or maybe we can see a jank brew about this, is I wonder how Monarch would kind of interact with Goad. Like, if you make yourself the Monarch, and then you just keep goading everyone else, so they can never take it from you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that seems like, you know, you, you throw that in a Marchesa shell or something like that, you run Disrupt and this guy, and bounce it as much as possible, but that's something I know I'd like to see. Oak put a lot of that in the Jared deck he made for me. That's right. Oh, he went to Jared, all right. Where it was like, oh, uh, I'm gonna take the Monarch, everyone else fight each other. Then everyone else is like, well, then we can't fight you, and you're like, Exactly. <laughs> Better find that soundbite, Julian. Oh, I'm finding it. It's coming. Goad and Monarch are a match made in heaven, and I'm sure this demon, whose name I forgot again, <laughs> starts with a K. <laughs> Carter. He's a card. It's, his name is literally Card. Carter. Is a card. Yep. <laughs> if I can hold the mic for one more sec, I would like to talk about some very bad news. Frostbite. It's a, it's a snow instant... That can target uh, creatures or planeswalkers. It deals two damage for one red mana. Or three, if you control three snow permanents, yes. Um, kind of like Metalcraft. We got Snowcraft. Hey. <laughs> I have a deep sinking feeling that this means that one of my favorite cards, Scred, is not going to be reprinted in this set. My disappointment is immeasurable. <laughs> Maybe they'll have like a uh, mythic rare red like fireball Scred. <laughs> Oh, snowball. Seven mana, deal X damage, divided as among any number of targets where X is the number of snow permanents you control. Oh, put that in a gruel deck, just snow basics. Oh, yeah. You're running like 40 snow basics in that deck, and you, oh, just, yeah. you just kill people. Oh, yeah, oh, you just yeah. play exploration and like all sorts of stuff. Boom, get them. Anyway, I think we'll save the rest of our picks for... I really wanted to talk about the gods, because they're the mythics. I'm fine talking about them and i'm getting that sound bite too <laughs> <laughs> all right tell us about these gods julian first we have alrund god of the cosmos three blue and a blue uh he's a one one which is not very intimidating for a god but he also gets plus one plus one for each card in your hand and each four tarred col four told <laughs> card that you own in exile i was i i need more sound bites <laughs> um and then also at the beginning of your end step choose a card type then reveal the top two cards of your library put all cards of the chosen type into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So a little bit of card advantage. His backside is Hack of the Whispering Raven, which is one in a blue. 
two three flying reasonable rate uh, whenever it deals combat damage to a player return it to its owner's hand then scry two so you can set up all run as well as return haka it's not super exciting i do like that it's a creature in the early game so especially for things like in standard you can just kind of start getting in and setting stuff up but i don't think this is doing anything crazy jump in if you feel that it is but I'm going to move on to the next one. Then we've got Valky, God of Lies. One and a black for a 2-1. So once again, also underwhelming for a god. When he enters the battlefield, each opponent reveals their hand. For each opponent, exile a creature card they revealed this way until Valky leaves the battlefield. And then you can pay X to choose a creature card exiled with Valky with converted mana cost X, and Valky becomes a copy of that card. Notice it doesn't say until end of turn, which I actually just realized. So that's pretty crazy. And it doesn't even say it maintains this ability, so I guess it just stays like that. So... Uh, this is really good if you're playing Historic and you manage to snag an Uro from your opponent or something, but I don't know how great that is, especially not in, like, Commander. I feel like this just gets killed way too quick that your semi-thoughtsies effect is not that good. But the backside, the backside is Tybalt Cosmic Impasta, which is a... Cosmic Impasta. <laughs> which is, um... <laughs> cosmic is Pasta. Tybalt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since there's, uh, you're noodly monsters, you know? The, the pasta. Um... <laughs> Five of black and a red for a Tybalt. Uh, comes in with five loyalty. For when it enters Tybalt. the battlefield, you get an emblem that says you may play cards exiled with Tybalt, and you may spend mana or any color to cast those spells. Uh, so you get an emblem immediately, which I don't really like just because I hate emblems. You can't interact with them. I think they're dumb, but that's a separate soapbox. You also can play those cards as long as you have the em- Well, because you have the emblem, even if Tybalt dies, you can still play those cards. So that's pretty good. Then he ticks up to so he goes immediately to seven if you want to exile the top card of each player's library once again commander that's draw four because it's everybody plus you uh minus three exile target artifact or creature so just removal is good and then minus eight is exile cards from all graveyards add triple red if you get there you're you're winning the game i think this card is medium on the front but i think the back is really nice especially if you're playing like some sort of grixis control then we've got essica god of the tree which uh, i know is eric's favorite one green green for a legendary creature god. It's got vigilance. Eric, it's 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 a green card, and then on the back it's a rainbow card. It's got legendary support. Um, I, I was shrugging. You're right. There's just nothing else to say. You're right. So it's got vigilance and add one mana of any color if you tap it, uh, and then it also gives other legendary creatures you control vigilance and add one mana of any color. So fixes your mana if you're playing legendary tribal. That's cool. I, I think this side is kind of underwhelming. I think the back is very strong, though. Uh, the Prismatic Bridge is a legendary enchantment for Wooburg. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature or planeswalker. Put that card on the battlefield, the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I think this is pretty easy to break just because you just only put your combo creatures and planeswalkers in, and then you just automatically hit them. Kiki combo is like phoning it in, but you could do it. You know what I mean? So. Pretty strong, just consistent value if you manage to keep it around. Now, my personal favorite, Torolf, God of Fury. Two red red. It's got Trample. He's a 5-4, so already good rate. And then whenever a creature or planeswalker an opponent controls is dealt excess non-combat damage, so any sort of red burn spell, basically, uh, Torolf deals damage equal to the excess to any target other than that permanent. That is a unique effect. I think it's totally sick. This plays really nice with... Um, Torbrand and Fire Emancipation, which are in standard. So this guy is uh, going to take over for Torbrand in my Brawl deck. But this also gets really disgusting if you're playing things like Blasphemous Act or Star of Extinction in Commander because now everything's taking 13 damage. Most of the things are not going to have 13 toughness. So all that extra damage can just go to your opponent's faces. 
Uh, on the backside, Torrell's Hammer, one in red. Equipped creature has one in red, tap, unattach. It deals three damage to any target, return to its hand, and that also gives it plus three, plus zero. Oh. Just a really expensive lightning bolt, but sometimes that's the difference between a win and a loss, especially in something like standard. Last god is Halvar, god of battle. Once again, Wizards proves that they hate white. This is the worst god by a fair margin. Two white white for a 4-4 creature you control that are enchanted or equipped have double strike. And then at the beginning of each combat, you can attach an aura or equipment attached to a creature you control to another creature you control. And then on the backside, one and a white for Sword of the Realms, which is plus two plus so in Vigilance. And when the creature that it's equipped to dies, return it to its owner's hand. Just once again, we're white and we care about you being equipped and attacking, sort of. Except we do it worse than red and at a terrible mana advantage. Julian, sounds like you're not a big fan of the uh, the white god. I wanted the white god to be so good. He is probably the coolest looking. He's the god of battle. Plus two plus so in vigilance, really? That's pathetic. The back should be Embercleave quality. Yes, Torolf's hammer is better than this. Like, <laughs> and Torolf already has a busted front side. It's, once again, I'm just annoyed that the white god is, like, drastically underpowered, I think, compared to all the other ones. I think the second worst is probably the blue one. Then I think probably the green one, just because the front side is pretty underwhelming. Um, then probably... I think the green is worse than the blue. Really? You think so? Like, if you're playing a control deck, like, this is a great card to have out there. It's adding value to your cards that you are you have waiting in the wings with Fortel. It, it, it seems pretty powerful, and both sides seem playable. I like the blue one. I think the green one is fun. I don't think it's good. I guess that's fair enough. I, those are, like, they're pretty close for me, and then I think above that is... I want the red one to be the best. I think it's probably the second the best behind Tybalt, just because Tybalt, especially if we're talking in not just Commander, I think that the front side of Tybalt is pretty good in 60-card formats, but the red one's number one in my heart. Um, I just wanted to make a statement about the gods in general. Uh, don't necessarily know how much I like it, that, that of uh, how like really strictly they adhered to the like god uh, structure of the lore that this is based on, which is obviously North Norse mythology. In this set, I feel like we're seeing a lot of like the the big names and like key players in the Norse mythos. Yeah, I mean, this one definitely like of all the sets that have been top down recently, this has been the most top downiest. But I would counterpoint and say it's because Norse mythology has only recently become into the spotlight that they were going to take this approach, where like Greek myth. Even Egyptian myth, like before a couple of years ago, Egyptian and Greek myth were kind of more well known. And so, I mean, while I, I'm definitely happy to see the Norse gods in their entirety, because I just think they're cooler as beings, um, other ancient historians come at me. But I think in this case, they felt like they didn't need to go outside of the ideas of where these gods came from, because there's less known about these deities. Lastly, I just want to say, I do think it's interesting that these gods don't have any sort of indestructibility. Maybe that's another thing that's kind of got me slightly down on them is that like you just play any of these front sides and it can just get killed immediately. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think the big thing is that, you know, in Norse mythology or whatever, a lot of the gods aren't immortal. Like they do die. Like the whole idea of Ragnarok, the coming of the end times is basically everyone dies. So it's it's less of like, yes, they are eternal forces that exist and shape the world around them. But their mortality is known as opposed to like the Greek gods where it seems like nothing can really kill them unless, you know, a, a book that takes place then needs a story device. So I, I think it's they are super powerful, but that doesn't make them immortal.
That's fair enough. Yeah. I wish from a gameplay standpoint that they did, but from a lore standpoint, I, I now understand why they don't. Well, I think we'll cut it there, and we'll come back next week when we have hopefully the full set or 90% of the set. I mean, if we miss out on a few commons and uncommons, I don't think we're going to be too upset. But remember, you can find the Hex Shrinkers podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else better podcasts are found. Check out our website, hexshrinkers.com, to get all sorts of content from us as well as see this podcast follow us on twitter or instagram at hex drinkers to continue to chat magic with us tell us what's your favorite previews what you're excited to see and also follow us on twitch and youtube at hex drinkers to see any sort of video content from us it's been jules with uh, eric okenchev we are the hex drinkers and we're signing out <laughs>